invite you to make your way to James chapter 5. As we finish out this book today, we come to the 13th verse of James chapter 5. And I'm reminded in light of this text that wherever and whenever people live in community, it's a messy business. Messy, not always in an evil sense, though often, but always in complicated, intense, attention-riveting, energy-spilling ways. Moms of preschoolers will certainly agree, won't they? As will families, and as will those who work uh, with other workmates and students and church members. Wherever we come together, we realize that we come together in a physical universe which has been corrupted and it has been subjected to chaos. And humanity has fallen in sin and we relate to one another as sinners. And so, whether it's a culture, a town, a political party, a team, a school, a social group, a business, a club, a church... Things get messy. Entire industries in this world and social disciplines are devoted to helping us cope with the messiness which we as God's people face like everyone else in this world. Whoever it is, wherever they're found, there is this chaos. But there is a difference. We face it like everyone else, but there is a difference, and that difference is that we come at this with a tool in our toolbox that is unlike anything else that the world can offer. It is unlike anything else that the world actually in reality knows. That tool is prayer, and it is a powerful, powerful tool. As born-again followers of Jesus Christ, we do not navigate this fallen world alone. We do not navigate it by our own wits. In every trial, in every challenge, we have direct and welcoming access to the Creator and the Sovereign of the universe. And when we begin to grasp the privilege and the power of prayer... We rejoice to form a community of prayer. There's really no other way forward for us. We see it this way. We long to pray together. This was seen, was it not, in the disciples of Jesus. Remember, a disciple in that day, we we really don't have anything that parallels it in our culture. But a disciple's job was to walk with the rabbi day after day, moment by moment, and to discern how the rabbi lived life. I mean, it got intimate. You lived with this rabbi all the time so that everything that he taught, you would be able to teach as well. But even in the very way that he lived his life, It got really intimate. You watched him day after day after day. You remember what the disciples said to Jesus after having lived with him for some time, watching his every move? They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. They'd been taught to pray all their lives. But knowing Jesus, there was a power there was a process of life that led them to see their deficiency and they said to Christ, teach us to pray. In the Spirit of Jesus, James concludes his letter to his Jewish friends by teaching them to pray. And I would add this phrase, teaching them to pray as a household of prayer in a community of mutual care. As a household of prayer, in a community of mutual care. We'll see this as we work our way through to the end of this book. This is how they must navigate the messy world, and how we honor the Savior who gave us new birth as a new humanity in Christ. James' instructions to pray in caring community are tethered to four situations in this passage. Notice them here. We'll just walk through them that we get the structure of the passage. First, in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? You see there the the, the second half of verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Number two, 
Number three, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? You see, the if anyone, or is anyone, is anyone, is anyone, suffering, cheerful, sick. And then we drop down to verse 19, and he says, if anyone among you wanders. Again, that word anyone, I think probably connects it, though there's a distinct thought here in verses 19 and 20, it connects it to what comes before. So in these, with these three situations of life, we are called to become a community of prayer that demonstrates mutual care for one another in our spiritual walk. He starts there then in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Now, how do you picture that scene? James writes this letter, you receive it, you've gathered together as a church, and he says these words, is anyone among you suffering? Do you get the picture in your mind? They're kind of looking around going, no, no, I don't think there's anybody suffering here. If, if that's how you would take that, if you have room in your mind to think that's how they would receive this, you're not really following the book of James, are you? This is where the book starts. Count it all joy when you enter into trials of manifold, variegated forms. There's a, they're all over the place. Of course they were suffering. Chapter 5, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's right in that context of teaching them how to suffer. And he refers there in verse 11 to Job, who suffered in ver- various ways. Of course they were suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Isn't wondering if there might be an individual out there suffering? Is there anyone here that would stand up and say, I have no suffering in my life whatsoever? We do. Of course we do. And here's the exhortation. Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. I ask myself, is it really necessary to remind Christians to pray when facing trials of various kinds? Apparently it is. Why pray? Why be exhorted to pray in the first place? Because there are a lot of other things we tend to do at such times that are far less constructive. We tend to respond when suffering with self-pity. We tend to respond by complaining. We tend to respond by pursuing diversions that will help us forget about what we are suffering. We don't always think about God and talking to Him. Pray. James' counsel here, if we could call him our Uncle James, comes to us always with this direct language. It's so helpful to us. He gets right down to it. He says to us, when you are suffering, there should be a trigger in your life to prayer. It should lead you to pray. This should be a pattern of your life. I mean, how could we not turn to our Heavenly Father and seek the power of all powers to aid us and strengthen us and teach us His will? But strangely, we don't. And so we are reminded in numerous passages of the Scriptures to pray. As Paul says it so memorably, do not be anxious about anything. There's again a response to suffering that is so normal to be anxious. Don't be anxious. Rather, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Qualifiers there we won't sit on, but they're important. And the peace of God, I promise, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious, but pray. Here it is again. James does not pause to consider what we should pray, but the Bible's instruction on the purpose of our trials is a good place to start, is it not? It's a good place to start right here in this book, in James chapter 1. Why do we pray? What should we pray about in suffering? The first would be very obviously to grow in faith. That's what God is up to, James chapter 1. Secondly, to be equipped to comfort others. 
as I am suffering, as I'm praying to the Lord, I know His Word is revealed in 2 Corinthians 1 that He's equipping me and teaching me how to be a comfort to others. That would seem to be a wise way to pray. Thirdly, to experience God's strength perfected in weakness. I take my suffering to the Lord and say, show me your strength. See, it's different than take away my trial. And we can pray that on some level if that's the will of the Lord. But it is to be strengthened through this trial by the strength of God so that I see His strength perfected in my weakness. A fourth prayer would be to be weaned off the idolatries of this world and to set our sights on eternity. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Are you suffering today? Here is the Word of God to you. In the assembly that Jesus has purchased by His blood, we come today before the Word, and here is His Word to you. Pray. Talk to your Heavenly Father. Talk to Him wisely. Talk to Him with grace. Talk to Him with thanksgiving. But pray. Pray alone. Pray with other believers. Pray for other believers. Eden Baptist Church, is anybody suffering? Pray. Become a man, a woman of prayer. Talk to God. Number two, is anyone cheerful, says verse 13. Anyone cheerful in keeping with the emphasis on prayer in this passage. And you could go through and just mark the words prayer or prayed uh, throughout this passage to pray. And you'll see that it, it just continues to jump out at us. But in keeping with that emphasis, singing praises lays stress also on speaking to God, it would seem here. When we are cheerful, we are exhorted to turn our joy Godward in songs that magnify the splendor and the goodness of God. Does this strike you as just a little strange? I mean, why talk about singing when we're cheerful? Let's think about that. What is James driving at here? I don't think it's strange at all. James's readers are enamored by the world. Chapter 4 and verse 4 uses some fairly spicy language to draw their attention to that very fact. You are drawn adulterously to this world. And when you are drawn to this world, when you are seeking its ways, the, this world is expert in expressing cheerfulness in God-forsaking ways. So don't forsake God in your cheerfulness. Rather, turn to Him with songs of praise and rejoicing. Perhaps secondly, James marks out the wide range between suffering and cheerfulness here. It might be another motivation for talking about singing at times of cheerfulness. That is, on these, in this range, in this scope, from suffering to cheer, that we would learn the pattern of turning it all into praise to God. That we would petition God. That we would think about talking to God when suffering or rejoicing. Now, I don't think that he's thinking we should sing only when we're cheerful. Sing in times of grief and suffering as well. It's very appropriate. It's very right. In fact, we even consciously talk about that at times. Are there songs that we sing in assembly that permit the grieving Christian to grieve? There should be. I think that there are. So it's not just, just only then do you sing, of course, nor does James intend to restrict our joyful songs to the shower. I think he's talking here about us singing together as well. That would certainly be appropriate application. And I hope that as we come on the Lord's day, we will come with suffering, and there may be some who are singing the very same songs with a heavy heart, finding hope in the Lord but certainly we should come on the Lord's Day to sing as a congregation of faith with joy, with cheerfulness, with thanksgiving for what He has done. And to realize that when we come together, we're not here just for a musical exercise. We come here on the Lord's Day to do something very significant, and that is to lift praises and song to the Lord because the Scriptures teach us this. 
And if Christ has saved you, he's put a song in your heart. You long to sing. You might not be very good at it. I'll join with you on that. But you give it a shot. Because there's a song that he put there. We come together. It's not just we're going to endure the musical types for a bit. We come together to sing. We sing in the presence of the Lord. We lift up his praises. And hopefully we do so week after week cheerfully. Let him sing praise says James. So I think it's privately, and the shower is a great place, especially if you sing like I do. It just sounds a lot better. But it's also a public matter. And maybe sometimes we don't sing as publicly as we should. Remember the story of an old, revered evangelist that he found himself, for reasons I don't recall, on a bus with his daughter, a public bus. And they sat a little bit toward the back of the bus, and there weren't a lot of people around them, but there were some in the bus, and he began to sing a song to Christ. And he was singing pretty loud, (laughs) a song of praise to the Lord on this public bus. And his daughter said to him, Dad, people are going to hear you. And his answer was, that's exactly why I'm singing so loud. Even in his singing, a witness to the joy of the Lord in our lives. You've got to be pretty daring to do something like that, but go for it. Tell us how it worked out. We'll be interested to hear. Sing. Sing, Christian. There's joy in your heart. God has called you to praise Him. Third category, and obviously James and so we will spend a good bit more time in this category, but he says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Here, the command is to invite prayer. So if we're suffering, pray. If we're cheerful, to sing prayers of praise to the Lord. And if we're sick, to invite the prayers, particularly of the elders. Let's think through the whole section here. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he illustrates with Elijah, which we have considered in reading already this morning. Let's go back to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let me tell you, there's many interpretive challenges in these five verses. They could take us a long time to work through. We'll not be able to do that. I would like to dig into just a little bit here at the beginning, and particularly with identifying the sick, because the, the, the interpretation of the passage turns on it somewhat. Depending on how you see these sick people, it affects how you interpret saved and healed and the overall tenor of the passage. But also maybe just to walk through the kinds of questions we have to ask about the Scriptures as we learn to interpret them and work through them. The sick, in what sense are they sick? This is the question. Are they spiritually sick? Are they physically sick? in need of health, or spiritually sick in need of restoration. A case can be made for either, and I don't think there's any theological distinction that's drawn by these different choices. But is this person sick, physically, or spiritually? The word can be used either way in the New Testament. I'm going to give several arguments why I believe this person is physically ill. Just press through this for a little while, but just to think how we work through the issue, if nothing else... First, when the Greek words sick and healed are used figuratively in the New Testament, the context always consistently makes this clear. Since James offers no such explanation, it's safest to assume that he refers to physical sickness. It would typically be qualified. He just jumps into it here. He doesn't say anything about it. So I would start there. Secondly, The vocabulary that most influenced James was not the epistles, which do increasingly use this word of spiritual conditions, but the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus. And as we turn to the Gospels, realizing they were written a good while after 
James, but looking at the Gospels which record this heritage, these Gospels always use this Greek word to refer to physical illness. Thirdly is Mark 6.13, which is the only other New Testament reference to anointing people with oil. There's only two. It's these two. And in that passage, the disciples anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And there really is no question there that we're referring to physical illness. A fourth support is that the elders of the church are called here to assemble at the side of the sick and to pray over them. Such actions are most fitting to a debilitating illness. Now, certainly be fitting to a spiritual illness as well, but if it's not physical, the question could be why call them to the side of the ill. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then number five, if a person is so spiritually sick and downtrodden as to require pastoral attention of a significant sort, can we imagine this person has no sin to confess? Possibly. No sin that has led to this state. But James does say here, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, assuming that this may not be the result of sin. Just a way that we work through it. Now, there's uh, good people that that think differently. Uh, So, again, there's no theological issue here. But this is how I would work through it and say that we're dealing here with genuinely sick people, which is how the English translations almost universally translate the word, not indicating any type of spiritual illness, though would we say that's excluded? Certainly not, and where there is spiritual illness, there is often physical illness of one form or another. But again, I'm going to say here, I'm going to, as I understand the passage, that this is a pretty serious illness. I think that's in view. More on that in a moment. But what is this person to do? To call for the elders of the church. There's a lot of churches, if you called, not talking telephone, of course, but let's just say that, if you called the elders of the church and said, would you come to my hospital bed and pray for me, they might be scrambling to figure out why on earth you're asking that. There should be a type of relationship within the assembly, a mutual care, where that's an obvious request. The consistent evidence of the New Testament, in my understanding, is that there is a body of elders, typically, that shepherd a congregation. They are commissioned by Christ to oversee the spiritual progress of the flock. That spiritual progress is never separated from the physical care of God's people. Now, the elders have less direct responsibility in the physical care of God's people. We see the deacons providing much of that leadership within the congregation as the congregation cares for itself physically. But this is one of the passages that indicates we don't have the spiritual side of people that really matters and the physical side that really doesn't matter a whole lot. We're body and spirit. We put the two together because the Bible puts the two together and we don't ignore one or the other. And so they are to come to the side of this individual. Now, I really am doubtful this this is for every sniffle. Every medical procedure that's imaginable, we have to call all of the elders of the church to our side to pray. I I think we can use reason here, thoughtfulness as to how this is applied. But again, as all of the elders, presumably those able to attend, as they come to the side of this sick person, it would indicate they're fairly ill. There's, otherwise, it would be hard to understand why they would not just pray together as they were assembled or after the assembly or something along those lines. So I think what James envisions here is a person sick enough to say, will you come to me? And calling the spiritual leaders of the assembly to pray over them. Now why this approach? Why call the spiritual shepherds of the church to attend to one who is ill? First, the sick person thereby recognizes that his or her struggle with illness is a spiritual struggle. Let me ask, consider how many idolatries leach into our soul when we consider the wonders of modern medicine. 
How many idolatries are latent there? How easy it is to put our final hope in doctors, in medical procedures, and medical treatments. And I thank God often, as I find myself in hospitals, I thank Him often for the world in which we live. For the wonders of those who care for the body in a way that has been unimaginable in the history of this planet. We receive physical care that we should thank God for. It's amazing. But doctors aren't God. And medicine is not the miracle. There is a great physician. We want to encourage and bless those who care for the body, working with them, thanking God for them, but recognizing God isn't somewhere on a shelf. He's there in the hospital room. He's there by the operating table. He is there guiding the hand of that surgeon. He is there with all of the medical staff that is helping and assisting and keeping this person alive. Now, we're not talking here in the book of James of such a context, but as we apply it to our context, the temptations and the idolatries are multiplied exponentially. We can trust in medicine. And we'll pick up God after we get out. After it's all dealt with. No. The person who calls on the elders of the church says from the very beginning, this is part of my walk with Christ as a child of the Lord. So the church member is called to initiate contact as an act of faith in the Lord. We might say secondly why this approach from the elders' perspective, what is it? It's very clear, isn't it? They are to go and to pray, to care for the gravely ill member by beseeching the great physician for healing and for grace, to minister through prayers to this sick person. Verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. There's something else that goes on along with prayer here, and that is anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And again, we could go weeks about what that means, anointing him with oil. The Roman Catholic Church has famously seen this as the sacrament of extreme unction. In extremis means you're about to die, and unction the word for anointing. So they have developed what they call a sacrament, a way of saving grace that is conveyed to the one about to die by anointing them with oil as the priest anoints the individual with oil. This interpretation finds its authority not in the Bible, but in the Roman Catholic Church's own determinations. And for them, the rules by which they play, that's legitimate. They believe that the church speaks with authority equal to Scripture. So they're free to do such a thing. But they do link it to this passage. And I don't think that is what this text is teaching whatsoever. This sacramental view of anointing. On the far other end are those that would say, well, this is just a medical application, a medicinal application of olive oil, which was commonly used to cure people of illness in the ancient world. And it was. But I think the answer lies somewhere between these two poles. Olive oil was indeed used to treat many illnesses in the ancient world, but not all illnesses. And it would seem rather strange for the Scriptures to mandate one treatment without mentioning many others that were used at that time. I also think it's nearly impossible to conceive a Jewish person anointing someone with oil with no symbolic meaning. Wherever you anoint with oil, there's always some symbolism that is there in the Jewish way of thinking. So I think the idea here, as I would understand it, is anointing consecrates the sick person to God in the battle against the intrusion of sickness in this world. This isn't the world that God created. This is a mess. He didn't create us to die. He created us to live, but in sin we all die. So it is right for us to fight back against this chaos, to fight against sin and its results in, in death and illness. 
But oil serves maybe something like the elements of the Lord's Supper to very tangibly draw our attention to the consecration of this sick individual in the battle against death. It makes it tangible. So this church member's quest to face the severe illness and utter dependence upon the Lord is attended by anointing with oil. The goal is not, I would argue, to seal the person for death, but it is rather restoration of health. You see that in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will heal him. That's the goal. Not to put the person in the grave, but rather to see this person come to health. Now, someone might ask, and I hope you are. I hope, you're, I hope maybe somebody's saying this. Why doesn't Eden Baptist Church do this? Why don't we anoint with oil? The answer, we do. The reason you don't know is because it's a private affair. It's not something we do in front of the church. We're not instructed to do it in front of the church. We're instructed to do it at the bedside, in a private location. I don't believe that what James is saying here is mandatory in every situation, that you're disobeying God if you don't receive an anointing with oil. But we have had people that have asked for this, and I have on some, on some occasions suggested it. We, ha- we do indeed, in a symbolic way, anoint a person with olive oil and pray for them. Now, if this is unnecessary, we're not losing anything. It's not hocus-pocus. We're not looking at it as some miracle potion to put on a person. But by this very way of thinking, to consecrate the individual uniquely to the Lord. And I think there is some effect that anointing with oil has upon the sick, much like the Lord's Supper has upon us when we consider Jesus' death. We realize this is serious. And we realize through the anointing of oil, this one is consecrated to God as we pray. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith, says James, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. If he's committed sins, that is severe sickness, may be the result of sin. And that's what we in the West have to consider. We always think sin's got some biological point, that's it. We don't like thinking in terms that sin may lead to physical illness. For them, on the other hand, they probably need to be instructed to some level that it's possible to be sick apart from sin. And so, in such cases, the elders of the church are in an ideal position to lead the sick person to confession of sin and repentance if that's at the heart of the illness. And I've I've even heard of of situations in which the confession of prayer is made and the healing has been very rapid because the ill person recognized I'm sick because of my attitude. I don't know. We're not God. We can't figure out where everybody's at and why things work the way that they work. But we're being instructed here. This is a spiritual matter to be dealt with by the church If there is sin behind this illness, this person will be raised. Forgiveness will be granted. Now again, some, I don't think the prayer of faith is a matter of believing hard enough. If you really believe, really, really, really believe, then the person will be raised up. I don't think that's the idea. And again, some, I don't think James is guaranteeing healing whenever the elders anoint and pray. I don't think that's what he's saying. It can come across that way if we take it this way. But I think James speaks somewhat proverbially here. God raises people up through prayer, so pray. I think that's his point. It's not a magical formula to see everybody raised up from their illness, but it is saying that prayer is powerful. It accomplishes God's will. And sometimes in God's grace, He as the Sovereign Lord raises the person up from their illness. Verse 16 expands this principle now of care through prayer in the community 
of the local church. Notice this as we move from the specific of illness into verse 16 to a little bit broader application, but yet directly connected. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He certainly refers to confession of sins that lead to illness. But I believe he also speaks more broadly of mutual confession as a crucial feature of the church's culture. I say that again. Mutual confession as a crucial feature of the church's culture. If you're uncomfortable, you're with me. If you're not uncomfortable, think about that for a while. A culture of confessing sin to one another. Confessing sin is a way of life for believers who walk in faithful community. There's a lot of qualifiers that go into how we should do that. Who should we trust? How can we pull this off? We can't get into that this morning. But a church should be a culture in which confession of sin is routine and is on some level comfortable. Humbling, but not something I fear. Those of you part of our orientation seminar, you're going to have heard these words before, and so have all of us perhaps on some, at some point. But let me draw us back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. It's so well said. In confession, and we're thinking of confessing to one another our sins. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the, from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. There is a wealth of value in that statement. It is so obvious. Sin loves to get you alone and keep you there. But in confession, he continues, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The expressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, amen, and in the fellowship of His brother as well. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. That's called hyperbole. He's, he's overstating it. Of course, the power of sin is not gone forever, something like that, but you see His point. When we share the burden of our sin in the community, we begin to share its weight and its power is broken. I may speak to someone here, your sin is taking you down. You are spiraling downward into it and you're all alone. No one knows. In fact, you are organizing your life so that no one ever knows. This is a word from God. Stop. Invite a brother or sister in to the conversation and you will begin the severing of the roots of that sin. Now we've got to be careful. There's all kinds of qualifiers that we should put in. Don't go around blabbing to everybody everything you're doing wrong. We really won't welcome it. But... In a loving community of faith, this is normal. It's not rare. It's normal. we got work to do, don't we? Verse 16. The second part of the verse says, In this light, 
as we are praying for one another in community, remember that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Difficult phrase to translate. You might note a marginal note there that might give a bit of a different way of looking at it. But prayer is a powerful tool, is the point. It's a powerful tool in the believer's response to the challenges of life. Remember, he says, Elijah. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now there's a lot of questions about that illustration. His prayers for the drought are actually assumed in the text of the Old Testament, why would he choose this and not, for instance, the time when he prayed down fire from heaven? There's a lot of questions about this illustration, but I wonder if in part he might not use Elijah and this particular prayer because it was powerful. Three and a half years without rain. And then you pray. You give yourself to a season of prayer on Mount Carmel and God brings rain. It's dramatic, and yet, it's not miraculous. If he'd used the illustration of Elijah bringing down fire from heaven, perhaps we'd be trying to do that. But rain comes, and rain is withheld. And what the Scriptures make very clear, Elijah's prayers were connected to the drought and to the rain. He was a man... Oh, this is wonderful, isn't it? With a nature like ours. With a nature like yours and mine. In God's way of seeing things, Elijah wasn't all that special. That's one idea. But I think the other is this. It is not magnificent faith in God that is at issue but faith in a magnificent God. It's not me learning how to really, really, really believe. It's not me about being some profound saint that the ages will recognize for my great faith. Praise God for such people. But he's saying Elijah was a guy just like you. It's not how big your faith is. It's how big the God is in whom you place your faith. So pray. Pray for one another. Pray for healing. Pray for forgiveness of sin. Pray in mutual community. Number four, he links together, is anyone wandering? Verse 19. Is anyone wandering? Rescue that person. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If anyone slightly alters the is anyone pattern, but you can see why. The situation requires the community to provide the assessment of members who are not seeing themselves clearly. So are you suffering? Yeah, you can answer that yourself. Are you cheerful? You can answer that yourself. Are you sick? Very clear. I can answer that myself. But he says, are you wandering? Those who are wandering don't want to answer that question. They may not even be able to answer that question. They're running so fast the other way. They've got their eyes shut and fingers in their ears and they're humming loudly. So he's not going to say, is anyone among you wandering? They would already know it. They'd be on the path to confession and forgiveness. Is anyone among you wandering? Do you notice that phrase, among you? We're talking about a church member. So, Eden Baptist Church, he's talking to us and saying, you are a community of faith. You are believers in Jesus Christ, saved to live a life of faithfulness before Him, and you're to watch for one another. And it may be that someone in the assembly begins to wander away from the truth. How does James interpret truth? Clearly, a body of doctrine. Truth. But we know James... Faith without works is dead. So it's not just the truth of Christianity, but anyone wandering from the truth in the sense that their life is not lining up with the truth. 
If someone begins to wander in that way, how do we respond as a church? How do we respond as the followers of Christ? With gossip? Criticism? Ignore the person? I'm going to mind my own business? James says, listen, if someone is wandering from the truth, bring him back. Go get him. Shepherd his or her soul. When we see a member of Christ's redeemed body begin to stray into sin, whether it's doctrine or morality or disruption of the unity of the body, we are to go on a rescue mission. This word of instruction from James indicates that the local church is to form a disciplined community in which disciples are equipped to care for one another and build one another up in the faith. It demands that we understand the doctrines of sin and repentance and forgiveness and edification, that we are a community of grace and restoration and love for one another. If we are going to put this passage into play, it means that we must learn to identify, we must learn to identify beliefs and patterns of behavior that are incompatible with the disciple of Jesus Christ. It does not mean that we need to become private investigators, self-righteous judges, But it means that we should be able to perceive this is how a believer lives. And here is something, someone who has clearly wandered from the path. Do we have that skill as a church? Are we able to do that? We're not walking in maturity unless we do. It means we must develop the skills of constructively and graciously addressing members who are caught in sin. And it means on some level that we have to be able to talk to one another privately in small groups, privately and in small groups, and it means that we must learn how to listen to one another, to be discerning and thoughtful and to really open our ears. The results are amazing. They can be. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save that sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Ultimately, this judgment speaks of hell. If the sinner reveals he's not a child of God by turning away from the true doctrine and not living faithfully before the Lord, we might be able to see this person saved from hell. But at least from judgment as a believer, covering a multitude of sins, I think is just a parallelism, an allusion to the Old Testament concept of blotting out sins. But as we bring this book to a close, as we bring this last section to a close, it's just a reminder, life's messy. There's suffering that is here. There's rejoicing, and that's messy in a good way. But there's there's rejoicing. We get deathly ill, and we wander from the truth. But we're reminded by James that a sovereign God rules from heaven's throne and He invites us to seek His aid through prayer no matter what we face in this waking world. When we grasp the privilege and the power of prayer, we will pursue life as a community of prayer. We will become a household of prayer in a community of mutual care by the grace of God and for His glory. What wonders our Savior has planned for us as a church. What amazing wonders He has planned for us. To become a household of prayer and a community of mutual care for the, by the grace of God and for His glory. Now this will call for an individual discipline. It will call for a communal discipline. This is something you must do as an individual believer in response. It's something that we must do as a corporate body. Every human being faces life in a messy world. But we face it with direct and welcoming access to the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is our loving Heavenly Father. What privilege is ours and what plans He has for us. May that recognition change how we live and how we live together as the body of Christ. 
And just as a word of counsel, encouragement, and warning, if you have not come to Jesus Christ as Savior, you've not placed your faith in His death and resurrection from sins, don't go running into this passage too quickly. Before you enter into the community of prayer and mutual care, you must enter into the fold of the Good Shepherd. You must approach Him on His terms. And there's always a concern that we are tempted to approach Him on our terms by being good boys and girls. You must recognize He must invite us in by the work that Jesus Christ has done in our place. Then, then, we come with courage, with joy before the throne of God. Not patting ourselves on the back, not displaying a card that says, here's all the wonderful things I've done to earn access, but we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, because of Him, I've come before your throne and I pray. I pray because you've invited me to do so. I can tell you with great confidence that this access is not earned by your good works, it's not paid for by your money, but it is provided for everyone who will come in simple faith and put their trust in Christ. That's the prayer you need to start with. I confess, I repent of my sin, and I put my faith and my confidence in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Welcome me into your presence because of what He has done for me. That's prayer one, which then leads to a life of prayer in community with God's people. Let's bow. Lord, how we thank You for the wonder of the life You've given us in Christ. We're rebuked by this passage. It's not something we look at and go, I got that all covered. It's something we look at and say, I've got a lot to learn. I need to grow. The discipline of prayer needs to be developed in our lives as a church as well as in our lives as individuals. But we thank You for the privilege and the power of prayer We thank You for the privilege of that prayer finding its purpose within a loving and caring community of faith. I pray for everyone that is here in this community, for those that maybe feel left out, for those that feel on the fringes, for those who have not yet come to saving faith in Jesus. I pray that You draw them in. We would all recognize that our authority to come into Your presence is Jesus. No church, no human being, but Christ. I pray that those who have come to faith in Him, that as a church we would commit ourselves to living the life that You designed for us and that all of us would leave here today with joy of heart and even singing praises as we now turn to song soon. And pray that we would lift up those praises to you as we lift up our prayers for one another and for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.